I've anyone. always thought that this um, contentious spirit among the nations could only be solved by having a common enemy. I thought the common enemy was going to come from outer space or something like that, like <laughs> an asteroid or something. Hi, I'm Gina Cerrito, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lynn White and Judy Licht. We're the News Broads, broads casting about the news and all things media. We're here to give you insights on how it all works. A look at the news you won't find anywhere else. Just about everyone knows Alan Alda from his starring role as Hawkeye on the TV classic MASH, from his millions of other roles on TV, film, the stage. I mean, he's won seven Emmys, three Tony um, nominations, and an Academy Award nomination. He's hosted, I think it's 11 years of the award-winning PBS series, Scientific American Frontiers. And as if that's not enough, he's written three best-selling books. But with all of that, what he's probably best known as is America's quintessential nice guy. And as a friend, I can say he's nicer than that. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> no, you really are. I, I'm here to say that. I, they're not paying me. Um, but right now, Alan, welcome, by the way. Where, oh, where thank are you? Well, I'm welcome, you. Alan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to see you all. Uh, right now, I, you also have an incredibly popular podcast, Clear and Vivid, which is about communication. And there's the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook. And your last bestseller, if I understood you, would I have this look on my face? You really made yourself an expert on communication. How did that happen? You know, it, it grew out of my work as an actor, starting back when I was a kid, even when I would go out and do routines with my father at the Hollywood Canteen when I was nine years old. I was beginning to learn the importance of relating to the other performer to make such good contact with that person that I don't say my line because it's in the script. I say it because the other person makes me say it and makes me say it in a certain way. And it comes out a little differently every time because I'm connected to that person and I'm responding to that person and not to my memory of the line. And that's the basis of communicating, it seems to me, is it's one of the important parts of the basis of communicating, which is connection to the other person and not not unraveling everything you want to say and spraying it all over them. But what sparked your interest, I know, in science and communicating and 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 really making yourself an expert? You felt it was necessary or what? No, I found myself doing it. I, you know, instead of saying what needs to be done, and regardless of whether I can actually make a contribution, going ahead and trying to do it, I found out what I was doing naturally that was useful that I could help others learn to do. And, I, and when I did the Scientific American Frontiers, the television show about science for 11 years, I realized that I was doing with the scientists what I just described I had been doing with other actors which was relating to them, and they were therefore relating to me, so they weren't giving us little mini lectures about their work. They were trying to explain it to me. This poor schmo didn't understand it. And if I didn't get it, if I personally didn't get it, I didn't let them get away with it. I just kept after them. So that relating, I realized we could teach that to other people using techniques from improvisation and, and uh other things that actors use to, to get 
connected. So I, I've helped 15,000 scientists get connected to the public, to each other, to policymakers and funders. It's not me personally, it's this, all the Center for Communicating Science. And we do it on the podcast too. The podcast is me connecting to other people. So here's a little plug for the podcast. <laughs> I put up You're also under full podcast. I put up the clear and vivid logo on my on our Zoom call. <laughs> well, it's great. Sure. But has changed thanks to this coronavirus. We're all in these little boxes. We are relating this way as opposed to looking in someone's eyes or sitting across from someone. Do you feel like this is our future? I feel like it's my future for the next year at least. And I, I talk with my friends about this and I always say, what, how long do you think we're going to be sequestered like this, isolated? And they say, oh, uh, June, August, September. I think, it, I think it's 2021 for me. And there's this couple of scientists saying 2022. I think we'll all be gibbering idiots by that time. Well, and that's, that's, that's an interesting point, being gibbering idiots. I mean, we always were told, um, you know, limit your screen time, get out with people, and it's <laughs> yeah. not an option. So if, no. how is our interpersonal going to change from what you've learned as an expert to now. I think we're going to learn how to do it better because we're driven to be social. And if we, in prisoners in, in, in cells, you know, the, 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 the Orwell book where they, they communicate with each other by tapping on the wall. We're driven to that. We'll communicate if the only way we have is a little picture on the screen. We'll use it. I just saw you smile. That did something to me. It made me made me relate to you better, made me think about how what I'm saying is landing on you. Mm -hmm. So we'll use these little cues we get from the video screen and we'll connect. We have to. Well, I know you talk about, uh, you know, reading body language. Now that we're these floating heads uh, <laughs> in the ether. <laughs> well, your head is part of your body. I'm relying on that. <laughs> Just barely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where, where did I put that, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wonder, will it change the nature of our relationships? I mean, will it really, you know, if there's something... Yeah, it's going to be really disturbing when we finally see somebody in three dimensions. I mean, I'm, <laughs> when I find out you have the back of a head, I'm going to be disturbed. <laughs> So this is kind of the new norm for us, which we're all really acclimating to. What do you think the media's role in all of this is? And whatever that role is, is it working? It's very difficult. I think there are, and I'm, I'm learning in this virus epidemic or pandemic, that there seem to be two basic ways of communicating that we have to pay attention to in slightly different ways. One is person to person, what we're doing now, what we do with our friends, how we keep one another going, make one another laugh. It's very important laughing, I think. All the cocktail hour Zooms that I've been doing. Yeah, I've been hearing about you and the Davidsons by way. Not that I'm jealous or anything. <laughs> <laughs> You're next. Oh. And, and, and what I'm, what I'm thinking Wait, no, is that... <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking it's very important to connect in this personal way. And you generally know who you're talking to. So you can, you can be more 
apt to with them with regard to their their mindset. It's much more difficult when you're talking to millions of people at the same time. You don't know how ready they are to hear the harsh truth. So sometimes that leads to softening it a little too much, uh, making people hope for the best and a sooner back to work time and that kind of thing. And it also leads to possibly making people nervous and upset that don't want to be, don't need to be. It's an awful experience to get a moment of panic. Yes. I'm very positive about this whole thing. And I'm looking forward all the time. Uh, there are things I like about being isolated and sequestered like this. But I still have had one or two very brief, few seconds, moments of uh, panic. Am I, am, I, am, I, am I having a symptom? That kind of thing. So I, I, I imagine it must be really hard for somebody who feels that all the time. So we don't know when we talk in public how many of the people listening are prone to that. It's a very difficult thing to do. I've been watching you wanting to talk, Judy, for the last 30 seconds. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I, I, would, I selfishly finished my thought. No, no, that's a bad, a bad habit of mine, as my co-host will tell you. I'm always jumping in. Um, but do you think the media has done a bad job in the sense that they've really, really scared the hell out of everyone. I mean, it's to be frightened, but it's constant. It's constantly evil. It's constantly bad. They lead with the worst. Um, is it or is that kind of how media has always been? I mean, is there a difference between because they're all doing their reports either from their homes or their basements or telling you know them about their spouse that has it or whatever? I mean, is there a difference between the media before coronavirus and now? Communication. I don't think so. It seems like it's the same model. It's a, there's a gas explosion in Newark, and for the next twelve hours, <clears throat> we're hearing reports from neighbors. You know, and it, and it's there's this tremendous focus on what seems to be an event that's of national interest, and now we've got an event that's of world interest. So it's nonstop. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. Was the old yeah. news? Yeah. What do you think? I mean, you're all in the media. You are the media. Do you right. think it's doing a bad job or what? What do you think? I think oh. the fact that we need it more now than ever because that's the way we're communicating through the media. I think it's overkill, to be honest with you. I really do. How about you, Gina? You know, I, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think that there are people who are scared, and the way that they become less scared is to learn as much as possible. I think there are people that can't listen to it at all because it's too disturbing for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the problem with with the media is that at least when I was in the media, I was going out to stories. I was going to places. And now people are doing their interviews like this. I mean, in a in a pre-corona world, we would be interviewing you and, and where we usually interview um, at Judy's apartment. And, you know, it's so this is, you know, it's a different way to communicate. And I think that the media is using their same old model, but they're doing it differently. And I, I think there's going to be a lo lot of learning to be done in this sense. What, what do you think about this? The one worry I had about a natural tendency of the media is to ask questions to see if they can get a fight going between people who are 
supposed to be guiding us through this experience. And, you know, somebody is lacking in, in foresight or creativity and, or, or leadership in dealing with the problem. So they ask other people to criticize them. And, and that's like, it's like setting up a wrestling match that we don't need when we're trying to get the best cooperation out of people. And I don't like to criticize the media on any basis because we need them so desperately and they're criticized and demeaned way too much. But how do you handle that question of saying, why don't, why don't, let's, let's, you and, let's you and him have a fight? Well, you know, Chris Christie the other day just said that between Donald Trump obfuscating and the media antagonizing, they're just in a death spiral with each other and we're the losers. Right. And, and to your point. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way to put it. That you, you want people to cooperate more. Yes. And you're working with a leader who's extremely sensitive to criticism. So there's the problem. You don't want to lower your standards of bringing to light the problems. Yeah, but, but yeah, it's also so about TV, right? It's kind of that what you see what is what you get for that moment. And they try to embellish the moment sometimes from ratings, you know, and um, for other reasons. And it's changed everything, I think. And I think that's kind of what you were saying. I, I, don't, I certainly don't have the answer to that. I was just going to ask that. What do you think <laughs> the answer is? But <laughs> I mean, just, I, just I, an I, idea. I just, I have, I always fall back on what I think I've learned about communicating, which is to relate to the other person, to have empathy for the other person. Not by empathy, I don't mean compassion or wishing the other person well. I just mean as a communication tool to try to figure out what they're going through as you communicate with them. As I talk to you, am I landing on you? Am I creating an objection in your mind? How can I? How can I use what I think you're going through to make it clearer and more vivid to you? Mm. Clear and vivid. <laughs> <laughs> Very nicely done. Um, can if I could uh, change gears a little bit here? Um, we talk a lot about media, obviously, because that's our you know, thing here at News Rods and, um, and your communication. I just was wondering, in your opinion, the way that we're set up here, um, we're interviewing you because you're an expert, or I have a virtual cocktail party with friends from college or, or work or whatever. Um, I have three children, six, nine, and 13. And I feel that these are the days that they're making these friends and building these relationships. And I'm wondering how it's going to or maybe what we could tell kids on what communication means and what interpersonal communication means when you are at a distance. That's an interesting question. I, that, I'm not working with kids right now, so I, I, that hasn't occurred to me. Making friends for the first time this way. Must or be even fun. just building friendships or, right, I mean, right. I mean, I just, my kids haven't seen their friends in over a month, which to them feels, well, for all of us feels like, millions of years but um you know when we go back in what how is that gonna i just i feel that they're missing out on um on a lot you think it's it would be interesting to experiment with little kids and see if they can have tea parties with their friends or have um virtual uh, doll connections you know my doll's <laughs> talking to your doll and that kind of thing maybe maybe it's possible to set up games for them that have structure 
so they can get into the game and in the process relate to their friends and make contact because there is this barrier of talking to a screen that makes you feel you're not connected. But if you're involved in the game, you might get past that barrier and just relate. I'm just guessing. Jeannie, you said your you said your son plays hide and seek with his friends as six year. Yeah, so my six-year-old will take, yeah, no so kidding. he'll he'll take my phone and he's on a Zoom call and he'll hide somewhere in the apartment and say, guess where I am. That's great. It is. It's, it's, it's their survival. I mean, they're figuring out as we're trying to figure it out. So you could do Simon Says probably too. Oh, that's a good one. No Red <laughs> Rover. No Red <laughs> Rover. Good. You know, it's also interesting, um, our viewing habits in that now around 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, the president comes on to tell us the latest about the virus and what his administration is doing. And it's all about communicating. You know, some people believe what he says and people don't. He's got a certain tone and attitude. You are the expert at communication. If you were coaching him, what would you say to him? You know, he, he showed a tremendous ability to read the audience during his rallies. You could see him experimenting with a catchphrase, and it would come out casually the first time. And as the reaction builds, he'd draw on it more, and he'd he'd get punchier with it until it became a surefire thing to go to. So he was good at reading that audience. He seems less good at reading the audience about things where their lives are at stake. Mm. Maybe he lacks empathy. That's what I'm wondering. He seems, to, he seems to have a certain kind of empathy in terms of how he's doing. Which is, Yet he's got a great following. Yeah. You know? And, that, and he, he knows how to press those buttons to make that work. He doesn't seem to convince us that he cares more about whether we live or die than he does about his numbers. Uh, and that, I, I, I hope I'm not being so critical as to call no, it's the truth. Because I really, I really want us to cooperate above all else. Well, you know, Alan, Jerry, my husband Jerry, says that his listeners, his fans, the people who will always vote with him, are, it's like a dog whistle. They hear what he's saying when everybody else doesn't understand it, is angry with him. But they are a, a specific subset that hear, hear something we don't hear and always will. Yeah, well, I, I, there's the, the real th one of the real problems in communicating to a, a lot of people, the, the, the problem that the scientists have communicating about the coronavirus is trust. And people have, be, because of the vitriol and the split in our way of thinking, the press has less trust now than they used to have. Scientists still are trusted, but if they go against the person who's trusted more, like our dear leader, um, they don't trust the scientists so much. I mean, Fauci had death threats. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. No, it's, it's, it's really a frightening. So I would like to know if you think there's anything good that will come of this. I've heard people say, for example, well, this is a crisis like 9-11 or World War II or whatever, and out of this, people will become united again. Do you think that's, that has any... I've any always water? thought that this um, 
contentious spirit among the nations could only be solved by having a common enemy. I thought the common enemy was going to come from outer space or something like that, like <laughs> an asteroid or something. But we have it among us, and it is the common enemy of the world. And we have an opportunity to cooperate in our own self-interest, not, not out of some kind of do-gooder spirit to help countries that we never heard of, but because this enemy, by poisoning them, can poison us, we, we have it in our best interest to cooperate. Whether we meet that challenge, that opportunity, it's not even a challenge, it's an opportunity. It kind of depends on whether or not we want to listen to our best selves, our forward-thinking selves, or just react in the moment and worry about the immediate threat to us. See, this thing of empathy is so interesting to me. And what do you think of this? It seems to me that we have with this coronavirus a real challenge to our empathy because we can say, well, I'm going to protect myself when I go out because I don't want to catch this from somebody else. We could also say, I don't want to give it to anybody who can in turn give it to other people and eventually give it to me or my grandmother, that thinking about another person is at least half of getting the job done and defeating the virus. Because if all we think about is ourself, some of us are going to be people who don't have uh, symptoms showing. And all we're worried about is not getting it. And we might have it already and not know that our, the real danger in the room is us. Yeah, that's so important to to realize. We also have a candidate out there, um, Joe Biden, who is Mr. Empathetic. But some people say his communication skills might lack something. Again, going back to you being the coach, what advice would you give to him, if any? I think I'd give it the same advice that I give to everybody. Talk to the people you're talking to. Listen to the people you're talking to. If you're talking to a room full of people, you, you might think, well, there isn't much to listen to because I'm doing all the talking. But you can imagine, you can, you can make an estimate of what they're going through as you say each thing. How would this probably be landing? Therefore, what's, what, what's, what mindset do they have now at the end of that phrase that makes them ready for this next thing? Or should I say something else because I don't think they're getting it yet? They're not really with me. I've left them behind somehow. Either I used a big word they don't understand, or I got into the details, then they're not interested. I got to th- listen as though I'm them. Mm. Got to speak as though I'm them. And he's, I would say that um, Biden's going to have a, I mean, a harder time when these rallies aren't going to happen. This going door to door isn't going to happen. It's this election is, is really um, unprecedented in the sense of, I mean, does everyone already just know who they're voting for? Or is there some place to talk to people, to get into people, to start to explain things outside of, um, or that they want answers to that they would normally get? So what you've thought about this, what do you think are the, are the shortcomings that Joe Biden has to do something about? Uh, you know, I think that the problem with, in my opinion, the, the polarization of the, you know, the liberals and the, you know, conservatives and all this divide, um, because we aren't going to have a normal election where we could talk it out and 
and, and do this. I think it's going to just continue to keep us where the divide is and not move us forward, which right now I think politically we need to be moved forward, um, but I don't know if that's going to get its fair shake. I think, but I think, Gina, you're talking in general terms. Yes, I am. About Biden specifically, in answer to your question, Alan, I think the fact that, you know, he loses his way a lot of the time and um, is a problem, that he sometimes talks too much, but off point. Um, He has certain community, you know, he, I think he used to be a really good communicator. And I think, sadly, it's slipping by him and, and, and. And it's going to make him a target, unfortunately, um, you know, for, for mm, Trump as yeah, a bully. Yeah, well, Trump will, will go for that no matter who it is. That's, it was amazing when uh, uh, Bush, who was running against him, said you can't insult your way to the White House. And he did. <laughs> and he did. Yeah. He does that. <laughs> he did exactly that, yeah. yeah. Well, I got to tell you, you've got a really good message. Um, the book is fabulous, but your message is even better, which is that empathy really is the answer. It's the answer to communication, whether it's on a screen in little boxes or in person. Yeah, and I and I every time I say something like that, I really take the trouble to explain that empathy means as many things as there are the people who say the word. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a slightly different definition of it, but the definition that I'm working with is not that you that the empathy is doing something good to the for the other person. It's only reading them so that you can communicate with them. Because empathy this is something I think of as dark empathy, where you know what they're going through and you use it against them. Interrogators do that. Torturers, bullies do that. Yeah. They know exactly how you're feeling, and they know how to make you feel worse. Mm-hmm. So empathy in in, in 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 that light is not a, a helping a mood to be in. So we send you as much good empathy as we can, and we hope that you enjoyed speaking with us as much as we enjoyed speaking with you. I did very much. I think I talked too much. I wanted to hear more from you. Oh, well, okay. We'll we'll come on your podcast. How about that? Oh, okay. Now we're talking. We also should plug Alan's terrific, clear, and vivid podcast. And the book. And the book. And the book that he wrote, which is his latest bestseller, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face, which is one of the all time great titles. It's also about how we miscommunicate and what we can do about it all the time. And it's it's about reading one another. I'm sorry, Glenn. What? I said it's a great read. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. It's been fun talking with you. Alan, thanks for being with us today. And you know what? If you don't call me up to to have a cocktail party, my feelings won't be here. You know what, Alan? Me too. We are so available. She isn't. Yeah, you know, I I can't take this crying thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we will cry, but we will thank you for being with us. Thanks so much, Thank you. Great to talk with you. You too. You've been listening to The News Broads with Gina Cerrito, Lynn White, and Judy Licht. Our producer is David Levin and audio mixing by Barry Hirschberg.